All right, for the sake of time, let's get started. Some people had asked for a bibliography of what books I'm using, so it's a tough more. And if I didn't print off enough copies, I'll print off more. I actually added another one. Um, I had <laughs> actually forgot about this book. Um, this is a uh, this book is called Jesus and the Gospels, and it's more of a full-on breakdown of the Gospels. And so, if you're looking for more of a gospel-centric uh, book on Jesus, I would buy this one. Um, I don't know how much it cost because I've had it for quite a while and I was required to buy it, so I'm sure it was an exorbitant. Oh, $35. So, well, let's get started uh, with a word of prayer and then we'll uh, jump on in to some more. Heavenly Father, we come on this uh, gorgeous night and acknowledge that uh, it's kind of hard to come into a building on a night that is so beautiful, but we come with a purpose and a desire to grow in our understanding of who you are and to grow in our understanding of what you have done uh, throughout history and what you desire to continue to do in our present and in the future, and so we pray that you would be with the time that we have tonight, that as we uh, look at your word and look at other sources uh, from history, that you would open our eyes to what it is that you have for us, and help us grow in our understanding of your son. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to jump right in to 1 John chapter 1. If you need a Bible, there are some mustard-colored Bibles at the back. Um, if you're reading out of something other than the ESV, you may be slightly confused. Uh, so if you want to read out of the ESV, you certainly can. Um, that's what those Bibles are. If you want to stick with your own text, that's perfectly fine, too. So, uh, much like last week, we're going to be looking at a variety of uh, verses. Um, I would say tonight, yeah, tonight might be uh, challenging on the vocabulary side of some of the theological words, uh, but I think we'll, we will be just fine. So. so, tonight, trying to understand the humanity and divinity of Jesus. Uh, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you, may, you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 
So John opens up his letter, and he is going back and forth between the humanity and the divinity of Christ, and he's talking about the fact that it was physic- he was physically here, that they could touch him, and also that he was with um, the Father beforehand, and that's kind of going to be the theme that we're going on tonight. Flip with me to Colossians chapter 2 real quick, moving to the left. And Paul, writing to the church at Colossae, says this about Jesus. Verse 9 of chapter 2. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So, for in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, God in human flesh, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So we have this back and forth in trying to understand the humanity and the divinity of Christ, because uh, logically speaking, humanity and divinity don't fit together. So the first thing we need to do is talk about this concept of humanity, and what does it mean to be human? Again, you're like, seriously, this is where we're going right out of the gate? Yep, this is where we're going. If we want to say that Jesus is human, we need to be able to understand what does it mean to be human. Because we're going to talk about a few um, heresies, controversies about Jesus, and they're going to relate to whether he wasn't human, whether he wasn't fully human, or that he was just human. And then we're going to talk about some uh, divinity controversies, heresies, whether he wasn't God, whether he was fully God and not human, or whether he was just partially God. So, I thought, <clears throat> I thought, well, it would be kind of fun to uh, list the seven things that uh, we would say, in generally general terms, uh, make us human. But I thought none of you probably want to do that, so I'll just um, write them out for you. So, uh, first one is uh, organic, meaning living, bodily existence. So, if you um, don't have this, well, you're dead, <laughs> and you're no longer human. Uh what separates us from uh, other mammals is rationality. So if you have a living body and you have a rational mind, you say, well, that discredits some people I know. Uh, Okay, we'll just leave that be. Uh, If you have a rational functioning mind, then that also makes you human. If you have free will, (coughs) apparently my chips and guacamole are stuck in my throat. 
Uh, apparently, uh, I'll be fine. If you have free will amongst these things, that also is a key characteristic of being human. Which, why would this, how does this play into wrestling with the humanity of Jesus? Oh, I'm, I'm saying he did. He had to have if he was for calling him human. But, I mean, by nature, what is free will? Exactly. He could have done anything he wanted to do. In essence, he did not have to allow himself to be uh, go to the cross. He could have uh, seemingly stopped it. This uh, idea of affectivity... as another key characteristic that you are, um, in essence, functioning. Memory. Uh, Social. And this is another one that some people wrestle with. And they say, well, um, so if I live on a deserted island by myself and I'm not social, as in interacting with other people, then I'm not human. No, it's the innate social aspect of humanity. So we are created to be social beings. And then the seventh one is uh, limited and what how does that work? Well, if we are not, if we are unlimited, then what are we? What? We're God. By definition, human is uh, someone who is limited. On the divine side of things, Uh, One definition is the deity is beyond the material world. Uh, In other words, utterly spiritual in all its categories of, these are the categories, uh, gender, class, uh, infinite wisdom, Holy apart, and uh, untouchable. These are kind of the five big categories. So, um, this idea of utterly spiritual is in contrast to uh, utterly physical, as in temporal material. So when we speak of divinity, it's beyond uh, these classifications. So we can't really put a class, we can't put a gender on divinity, we can't put a class on divinity. Uh, Infinite wisdom, again, that fits within 
you know, the contrast of limited versus infinite, um, wholly apart, meaning completely other than, and then this idea of untouchable, meaning beyond, again, the material world, which would be these categories. See, part of what we have to do in understanding the humanity and divinity of Jesus is we have to first understand what we even mean by saying that. And these are kind of the broad general categories that we speak in when we talk about humanity uh, and divinity. So, how do we make the distinction between who Jesus is and what he does? And that becomes a big thing within Christology of how do we distinguish between who Jesus is and what Jesus does? Because Jesus, by definition, being the Messiah, makes him the Savior. And so how do we differentiate between the Jesus who always is and the function of Jesus and his ministry? Well, in essence, we can't. There are two sides of the same coin. So we understand who Jesus is by what he has done, and we understand what he has done by the fact of who he is. So where do we even um, begin? And one of the questions that I'm going to be uh, having you guys discuss later is, when we think about the humanity and divinity of Jesus, which one of them, in essence, is more encouraging to us, and which one of them is more challenging for us? It might be from a uh, kind of thinking, wrapping our minds around um, or it might be a personal, spiritual, encouraging side of things. Well, the first place I think we need to begin is in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And again, last week we talked about the importance of uh, context. And we talked uh, about the importance of the fact that Jesus was first and foremost a Jew... And so Jesus enters into this world as a Jew, and the foundation of Judaism is Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verse 4, the Shema. And the Shema starts with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So the foundation of Judaism is the fact that there is only one God. That's the foundation of Islam as well, um, the monotheistic side of things. But we have to understand monotheism is the focus of Judaism, and Jesus enters in in what is one of the biggest accusations against Christ, or Jesus, 
he is, I mean, why do the Jews reject him? They see that he's claiming to be God, or they impose on him that he's claiming to be God, and they say, you can't be a Jew because there is only one God, and you are clearly not him. And so the importance of monotheism has to be at the forefront of our minds because when the early church started uh, discussing how do we deal with the humanity and divinity of Jesus, they were doing it within a very monotheistic framework. So the concept of the Trinity is something that we say, well, duh. But the concept of the Trinity for them was not nearly as concrete as it is to us. And I would not even say the concept of the Trinity is concrete. It's very fluid and mysterious. And so early on, there becomes this distinction um, about what... What is the Godhead doing, or how are we understanding the representation of the monotheistic focus of who God is, one, within Jesus' function? And one is, there's a distinction between this dynamic uh, view and this modalistic view of who Jesus was. And it's directly related to the, div the divinity of Christ, of Jesus. And it is that when we look at Jesus, okay, so let's back up. You're an early church father. The, the reality of the person of Jesus was a given. Like, Jesus of Nazareth was given. Like, there was no debate, did he actually live? Was he a human being? That was just given. So there becomes all this discussion about, well, this Jesus of Nazareth, we know he lived as a human being, so how does God, how does his relationship with God fit together? And there is this dynamic view and this modalistic view. And the dynamic view is that God was... Uh, dynamically present with Jesus. I'm totally going to spell this wrong. So Jesus is not God, but God's presence was with Jesus. Because if we say that Jesus was God, now what do we have? Two gods. And now we've just completely thrown everything out the window. So we're trying to come up with a concept. How could Jesus have this relationship with God? And the first one is this idea of God was dynamically present with Jesus, but Jesus was not God. And the second one, kind of the, uh, well, maybe we agree with that, but it's probably more that Jesus uh, was a mode of God. So, in essence, 
when Jesus was present on earth, he was a uh, name or person of the same God. It wasn't God the Father and Jesus. God came to earth, leaves heaven, abandons heaven, and comes in the form of Jesus. And so out of that, we start to see these heresies and these controversies start to spring up. And we look back now and we say, well, how could they have thought this or how could they have thought that? But we have to understand that these people are trying to wrap their minds around this concept of the divinity and humanity of Jesus in the middle of their monotheistic framework. So we have to give them some space when we think in these terms. And the first heresy that comes along is the Ebionites. Let me spell it right. Ebionites. And many authors say basically everything that happened relating to Jesus and Christology happened in the, f- the first five centuries of, you know, after Jesus' uh, resurrection. And ever since then, everything that has come out has been a variation of one of these heresies. So this one is uh, very common today. And it was, Jesus was just an elevated human being. So we see this heresy continue really into many of the major world religions, which we talked about this spring, and the recognition, oh, of course we believe in Jesus. He was a historical figure that started Christianity, And all he was was a great human being, but he certainly um, was not God. God as in big G God. If you talk to people today that say, well, yes, I believe in Jesus, but he was not God. He was just a great prophet, or he was a great teacher, um, they wouldn't say that they are following Ebionitism, but that's what they are. It's the same, same heresy. Uh, the second one is people don't refer to it as a heresy, but in essence, that's what it is. And they refer to it as the Arian controversy. Now... Anybody familiar with this? The, phrase, uh, the, the main phrase of the Arian uh, controversy is, there was a time when he was not. So, um, in essence, this is denying the pre-existence of... Pre-existence of Jesus. So what does this do? Well, it does a number of things. If we acknowledge this, 
and say, well, there was a time when Jesus was not, that saves our monotheistic worldview, that retains the supremacy of God the Father, and we think we have ourselves a deal, well, what's the problem? If there was a time when Jesus was not, there was then a time when he was created. Jesus is not divine in this sense. That Jesus was a creation of God, making him less than God. And we'll talk about, uh, in particular next week, when we talk about the idea of the atonement, you know, why was it so important that Jesus was God? Because Jesus' divinity is an essential characteristic of who he was and what he did. So then we start to get into um, this debate within the Arian controversy, and it's um, a substantive debate. And we ask, was Jesus the same substance or a similar substance God. And we have this big church council and big pushback against the Arian controversy because if Jesus is not the same substance as God, again, he is not God. He's really close. He's similar, but he is not uh, exactly the same. And so as the Nicene creed is developed, that's in essence what they are uh, wrestling with. How do we communicate and take a, ch a stand as a church on expressing who Jesus is? And how do we wrap that into our own framework of the monotheism that we are buying into? So the first um, Council of Nicaea comes up with this um, saying, in response to Arians pushing forth that Jesus was not fully God, similar substance, but not the same substance, and a creation of God. He says, we, uh, this is what they... Uh, came out with, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. It's like, how many times can we say Jesus was God? Begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, same substance, by whom all things were made. Again, remember 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, which we read earlier. Both in heaven and on earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man, fully man. He suffered, and the third day he rose again, ascended into heaven, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. We've probably said this many times. And then they listed this appendix in direct shot at Arian. 
But for those who say there was a time when he was not, which is exactly what Arian said, and he was not before he was made, and he was made out of nothing, or he is of another substance or essence, or the Son of God is created or changeable or alterable, they are condemned by the holy Catholic, small c, and apostolic church. So we see this big controversy brewing, and they're writing these things to try and solidify who Jesus is. Now, if we think about that, I mean, this is in 381. And I was talking on Monday night with some guys about, you know, we think of, wow, this is an old building in the United States. And the Europeans are like, old building? This thing's brand new. Not meaning this building, but buildings in America. When we think about church history, 381, they make this declaration of who Jesus is. And we are still affirming the truth of that which was really stamped um, at this council in 381. So Athanasius was uh, an opponent to Arian, and he came out with, well, really the bottom line is Arian, or Arius, didn't write, or we don't have much of his writings, so in essence, um, what we have are his opponents' writings about him, which I guess is sometimes <laughs> sketchy ground to stand on. But Athanasius, Arius' biggest opponent, uh, says this. He says, Athanasius, well, Arian said this. Arius. Uh, so we're going to talk about these logical syllogisms, which are like, oh boy. Uh, no creature can redeem another creature. Okay, straightforward. Uh, according to Arius, Jesus is what? A creature. Therefore, okay, what can't Jesus do? Jesus can't redeem. See the problem? And in the flip side, Athanasius and the rest of the church fathers say only God can save. Jesus saves. Therefore, Jesus is God. So, retaining the divinity of who Jesus is. Uh, another big um, controversy slash heresy is doceticism. Uh, I should have brought my paper over here. This guy needs a table. Um, and doceticism...
really denies Jesus' humanity. So, in essence, Jesus was God, but he wasn't man. He only appeared to be man. That's really what that word means in Greek, to seem or to appear. So they don't deny that Jesus was on the earth and people saw him, uh, and they would affirm that he was God and that he came to be present on earth, that we saw him uh, or that they saw him and he taught things, but that he wasn't physically a human being. Because again, when we think uh, within the logical framework of Hellenic, you know, Hellenistic culture and the Greek culture was all about focusing on logic and how does something logically fit together. And when we look at the list of humanity and the list of divinity, they are opposed to one another. So they are uh, logically it's a logical impossibility to have a divine human being or a human God. It's the same thing as a having a square circle. A square, by definition, is a square, four-sided object, and a circle is not a square. And then the last one that I want to talk about is Apollinarianism. So Apollos comes along and says, you know, as they're working through all of these different options, um, not completely human. So we get closer, but um, close, of course, does not count when we're talking about Jesus. So why is this even an option? Well, as we talk about the humanity and the divinity of Jesus, we start to wrestle with, okay, if Jesus whoops, was God, and God is all-knowing, which we'll, we'll get to in a little bit. Why did Jesus ask certain questions as if he didn't know? And if God is, in essence, non-physical, beyond things, everlasting, how could Jesus die? How can God die if God, by definition, is an eternal being. And so we wrestle with these things, and that's what these people are trying to do. And so Apollinarianism says, well, Jesus was human, but not totally human. So amidst all of this, there's these two schools that developed, the Alexandrian school and the Antiochian school, and they're both trying to get at the same question, in essence, how do we uh, become saved? How do we experience salvation? 
what does it look like? And in the Council of Chalcedon, which was in 451, we get to uh, this conclusion. In dealing with the self, trying to, in essence, bridge together these two schools. Because the church needs to be unified. That's really what uh, the Bible teaches. And so they try and solve these two schools debating um, on what the importance or the focus was going to be. And they uh, put forth this uh, statement. We then, following the Holy Fathers, will all with one consent teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, fully God, fully man, truly God and truly man of a reasonable, rational soul and body, uh, co-essential with the Father, meaning Jesus was not underneath the Father, but on the same level, according to the Godhead, and consubstantial, again, uh, on the same plane with us, according to the manhood, in all things like unto us, without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father, according to the Godhead, and in these later days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of two natures, of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us. And the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. Memorize that. So, in essence, in 451, they get together and they say, we need to be of one accord and make one decision about this uh, concept of who Jesus is. And dealing with these two natures and make a declarative statement that Jesus was both fully God and fully man, and together at the same time, born of a, f a female in full humanness, retaining his full godness. And again, we say, well, yeah, duh. But part of what we have to wrestle with is it's not duh. <laughs> it has been, uh, passed down to us for a very long time, but it is not just uh, an absolute. Because the source of salvation, which we'll talk about next week, which we just wrote up there, only God can save, but what is required is a human sacrifice. So the requirements of full God and full man are before us. Flip with me to Philippians chapter 2, because 
throughout history, we say, well, again, how does this even happen? And to say it's a miracle, that you don't get to say that. That doesn't, that's, we need more than that. Obviously, it's a miracle. So what did Jesus do when he came to the earth? And Paul tried to give us this in Philippians chapter 2, a bit of an understanding which some theologians have picked up on. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. If you get to Colossians, you've gone too far. And this uh, 1852... This Lutheran theologian um, and pietist, German, uh, I should say German pietist, Gottfried, he was reading scripture and he comes across uh, Paul, Philippians chapter 2, and he says, aha, I have the answer. starting in verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also of the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the key word verse in verse 7 is he emptied himself, and we get this concept of kenosis, or emptying. So how do we wrap our minds around humanity and divinity coexisting in one being? And it's through this explanation that most people try and get their um, minds around it. And it's this self-emptying. So in essence, it's Christmas Eve. Well, maybe it was before Christmas Eve, uh, but bear with me in the example. Jesus is about to be fully human. Now I'm not saying that he wasn't fully human in Mary's womb. So before Jesus becomes an embryo implanted in the uterine wall, does that make us feel better? Um, he takes all of his divinity and he dumps it out in heaven. He empties himself of his divinity so that he can come to earth with his God abilities left in heaven. And there have been a lot of people who have tried to describe this in different ways. Uh, one of the funniest, I think, is um, if you are, uh, let's say, playing baseball with your kids and you say, to make it fair, I will bat left-handed. So let's say, um, greatest baseball player of all time is going to bat left-handed. 
does that mean they're not still the greatest baseball player of all time? I would say Barry Bonds, but we all know that he's not the greatest hitter of all time. Um, and Pete Rose, well, he's shrouded in controversy, even though, okay, never mind. Um, so when Pete Rose steps up to bat, greatest hitter of all time, but he's batting switch, he's not going to be able to hit the ball nearly as well as he can if he's hitting with his natural stance. Was Pete Rose left-handed? I don't even know. He was a switch hitter. <laughs> but in essence, he doesn't lose his godness. He doesn't lose his greatness because he becomes human. He makes a conscious decision to self-limit his div divine abilities when he comes to the earth to get over this controversy or to get over this um, issue. So as Paul says, he empties himself, verse 7, by taking the form of a servant. And if you remember last week, we were talking about the importance of Jewish Messiah and the king aspect and all of these things that the Jews were looking for. And Jesus comes in the form of a servant and it totally throws them for a loop because what they were expecting is not how he came. And so when you look at this, it seems to make great sense that in order for Jesus to be fully human and retain his divinity, he's got to leave his divinity behind. But he retains his divinity in his essence. He simply doesn't use his full divine potential. Thoughts or questions? So what you're saying is I read right out of your Bible. <laughs> Say something different. <laughs> right. So the question is, Jesus, if he leaves his divinity behind, how do we explain the miracles? How do we explain miracles today? Well, we've got a variety of options. We don't. What did you say? Okay, but... Closer. Who's doing the miracle? What part of God? Right, the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, when he's baptized, what happens? He has the Holy Spirit descend upon him, thus enabling him and giving him the ability to work miracles. And he even tells his disciples, you're going to do miracles just like me, even more than me. So we can come around that question of how do we explain the miracles of Jesus 
if he left his divinity in heaven, and it actually plays perfectly into understanding the unity of the Trinity, and how did Jesus experience and go through what he did, and we say, well, he used the Holy Spirit. Do you buy that or not? Okay. <laughs> no, okay, yes. <laughs> right, so then how do we explain him raising somebody from the dead? But if he's chosen to limit himself, he just stepped to the other side of the plate just for one hit? Correct. So he was in union with God. And if we say he was in union with God, the Father, which, you know, we get this whole other controversy, which we're not really going to talk about because... This is, we're focusing on Jesus. But, you know, one of the splits within the Eastern and Western church is around where does the Holy Spirit come from? And does the Holy Spirit come from God the Father? Or does the Holy Spirit come from God the Father and Jesus together? Or is it all kind of in union with one another? Uh, and so how do we understand the Holy Spirit's role within the Trinity, how do we understand the Trinity, and then how do we understand the role of the Holy Spirit within Jesus' life here on earth? So yeah, let's talk about that. Well, we're talking about Jesus. We talked about the Holy Spirit a few years ago. Maybe in another five years we'll talk about it again. I'm just kidding. Um, yes? They thought that God was going to give them a human being who would conquer uh, and bring them out. Uh, you know, a Jewish concept of salvation didn't mean going to heaven. And so this Messiah was going to deliver them from all the atrocities of this physical world. Um, but they would not, again, they're monotheistic one God, and so one God can't be one God and human beings. Because the Messiah, just like uh, the king, functions as God's authority on the earth, but it isn't God. Well, we talked a lot about that last week. Um, Maybe I was going too fast. <laughs> I was like, I thought you were here. Didn't we talk about this last week? Or did I dream about this? Or am I dreaming about what we're talking about right now? And it's going, I'm going to wake up and realize I shouldn't talk about any of that stuff. We should talk about something else. So, you know, we obviously have the advantage of saying, well, again, duh, we can see based on Scripture and who Jesus is and, you know, the writings of Paul that Jesus comes as a servant, not as a king in the, the kingly sense. 
but they were so focused on like monotheism, you know, this kingly deliverance that they miss it. They certainly did not put dot to dot to dot to Jesus. Yeah. And as Chuck, who isn't here because he was probably so offended by what I said last week, um, which isn't true, said, well, weren't they set up? So, maybe it's like a good movie. You need to go back and listen to it again. And then you'll be like, oh, yeah, right. That made more sense. All right, so let's look at, um, I want to look at some verses. And I first I want to look at divinity verses, which I wish we had some divinity. Well, if you like divinity, you probably wish we had some right now because it would be delicious and a nice little treat on a summer night. Why do we only have divinity at Christmas time? Crickets. It's hard to make. It's just basically meringue, isn't it? Baked meringue. Oh, oh, <laughs> what? We could have divinity right now, and you kept it at home. <laughs> all right, so let's look at. Uh, all right. Well, next week we'll talk, be talking about salvation. What do we eat when we talk about salvation? Um, Let's look at John chapter 1, verse 1. Again, if I go too fast, um, I can get you all of these references um, on a document, which maybe I should have done that anyways. So, John 1, 1. So, we're going to be going through a bunch of uh, verses in John because John did a lot of focusing on the divinity of Jesus. And then we'll get into some humanity of Jesus. And you say, well, last week you said that John was the most humanly um, gospel about Jesus, but there's also a lot of divinity, which if you just took um, the John class that we did, you'll remember all these references, I'm sure. So, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So John is making this declaration, and when he talks about word and wisdom, there's a whole Jewish um, context that we could talk about those two things, uh, but some things have to get cut out, and so I didn't want to get into that. But John is talking about the, the pre-existence of Jesus. And again, these heresies that we wrote on the board came about after the fact, and you can see where the gospel writers are, in essence, you know, debunking these heresies in the text. So, Jesus was not created. He created everything. So, the divinity, the divine aspect of who Jesus is. If we flip over one page to John chapter 3, verse 35... Um, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand on par, equivalent to God. 
Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Again, only God can save. Jesus saves, therefore Jesus is God. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So right out of the gate, uh, John is making, making it clear that this Jesus, the Son of God, um, is in fact God as well. If we flip to John chapter 10, verse 30, after Jesus talks about being the good shepherd, And again, this is where the Jews really started to not like Jesus when he starts making these types of claims. Because he is going completely against their monotheism. Well, let's start in verse 28. I give them eternal life, talking about the sheep, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So he makes this correlation. No one's going to snatch them from my hand. No one's going to snatch them from the Father's hand. Basically, the Father's hands and Jesus' hands are one and the same. I and the Father are one. So the union of the Godhead, God the Father and the Son, are clearly being, I mean, these are the words straight out of Jesus' mouth. Now, there is this kind of divergent track, which we don't have time to get fully into tonight, um, that Jesus didn't actually believe that he was God because he was such a Jew, and a Jew would never consider themselves God, but he saw the union that he had with God, the one-mindedness that he had with God, and that's why when he makes this statement, he's acting on behalf of God, but he is not saying that he is God. And that's taking that kenosis uh, position really to the extreme, that Jesus emptied so much of his divinity that he did not even consider himself God. And then you read some of these and you're like, I'm not sure how you stand in that position, but like I said, we don't have time to really delve completely into that. Um, I'm sorry, did I say 14 verse nine and verses 9 and 10? So Jesus says, I, uh, again, one of the other huge um, I am statements. Um, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have you, I have been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Again, Jesus making these declarative statements about the fact that he is, he and the Father are one. And then 17.3 And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So to know Jesus is to know God. Therefore, Jesus, again, is God 
and in the same uh, chapter, 1711, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then one more verse in John 20, 28. This is after the resurrection. And Thomas is, you know, wants to see Jesus. He wants to um, touch him. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So Thomas makes, actually makes the connection, much like the centurion at the crucifixion, after Jesus dies, he says, truly this is the Son of Man. And then just for good measure, let's flip to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, right after uh, Philemon. Big, long book. Hebrews 1, 8. This whole chapter is about the supremacy of God's, of Jesus. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So again, the writer of Hebrews is, t is even, not just the Gospels, not just... Um, Paul, the writer of Hebrews, is recognizing the divinity um, of Jesus. This, uh, Gerald Collins says, a Jesus who is not truly divine means that God was tr really unwilling to become human and did not, after all, set a value on us. So when we think about the divinity of Jesus, we see it as God placing such a high value on us that he would send Jesus. Jesus would leave heaven to become human um, with his divinity and the importance of that. Um. So, when we look at the divinity, we also want to look at the humanity. Now, again, for the interesting thing for us is, you know, early early church just accepted the humanity of Jesus because they either saw him, um, were eyewitnesses, as John mentioned, or they knew somebody who had seen him. And so, as we swing into uh, the post-enlightenment, we get further and further away from the physical presence of Jesus on the earth, in comes the question of the humanity of Jesus, and the, the search for the historical Jesus is all about trying to understand, A, did this person, Jesus, actually exist, and to what degree did they exist? So, 
I want us to look at some humanity verses about Jesus um, and the importance of them. So if we look at Luke chapter 2, You know, the question is, to what degree, and you look at these heresies, to what degree was Jesus human? And this gives us a pretty good picture. Uh, verse 52 of chapter 2 in Luke. So Jesus, as a young man, Luke tells us, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, when you look at that verse, you think, if Jesus was fully God, then why does he need to increase in wisdom or in knowledge? So, when you read Luke, and you compare that with Paul in Philippians, you say, okay, maybe Paul's, this kenosis theme is got something behind it. Uh, flip to the left to Matthew chapter 4, verse 2. And we look at the temptation of Jesus and the, the human aspect of uh, who he is. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Again, the role of the Holy Spirit in the life uh, and ministry of Jesus. To be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Okay, yeah, all right. If he's fully human and he doesn't eat anything for 40 days... Yeah, he's going to be hungry. I give him that. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then if we look at verse 21 of the same chapter, And going on from there, he saw two uh, brothers, James, uh, that's definitely not the verse that I wanted. Just kidding. Uh, flip to chapter 9, verse 36 of Matthew. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So he has this emotive response and he has compassion on the people um, because of who they are and their need for him. Let's look at, uh, what's next? 14, 14. Matthew 14, 14. Again, when he went ashore, 
he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. And then 1532. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat and I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. So I think maybe Jesus was partially Swedish. Like they, these people are with me, they must eat some food. Um, maybe. And then Matthew 20, verse 34 Actually, starting in verse 32, uh, and stopping, Jesus called, uh, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, he, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. So we see all of these instances where Jesus is moved by the humanity and the need of the humanity of these people, and he responds to them. If we flip over to 26, uh, 36. In the garden. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Now we see this interesting aspect of, remember, I think, yeah, it's number six. You know, what makes a human being? And it's the social aspect. And clearly Jesus, in his darkest time, in his darkest moment, wants to be with his people. And he wants to be with his closest people. And so it's further showing us the humanity, the human aspect of Jesus. Because we could get very tied up in the divinity aspect of Jesus and the fact that, well, he was God, so all of these things were easy for him. But when we pair that with the uh, human aspect of Jesus, it becomes glaringly clear. Uh, Mark fifteen thirty four. We just want to cover the waterfront of all the Gospels. Mark 15, 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, um, Aloy, Aloy, Lemma, uh, Sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, you know, we, when we look at this verse and we look at, you know, this relationship and the humanity and the divinity and Jesus' relationship with the Father and all of these other things, and we say, well, what is going on on the cross? And if he's fully divine and he has the mind of God, what exactly is taking place on the cross, which we're going to talk about next week. So, uh, 
two more verses. First, back to 1 John. That's where we started earlier. 1 John 4. And when we read a, a set of verses like 1 John chapter 4, we can see how the early church saw it so important to squash down um, some of these early heresies uh, that clearly were not based in Scripture. Verse 2 of chapter 4 of 1 John, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So the denial of the humanity of Jesus is stated right here in 1 John chapter 4 before it ever became a heresy. So certainly this is not the totality of the verses about the humanity and divinity of Jesus, but I thought this would give us a good sampling of uh, the scriptural basis for the humanity and divinity of Jesus. Which maybe we should have started there and then gone to the theological side of things, but maybe I'm just dreaming and I'll wake up and I'll get to do this right the next time. Any questions about uh, these passages? All right, so uh, the questions I want us to discuss tonight, <laughs> planned ahead. <laughs> uh, so we've talked about the two natures, meaning the humanity and divinity of Jesus. So which nature, human um, slash divine, which I should have put a another parenthesis or a mark there. Do you find most encouraging, and why is the other challenging? So as we were going through these passages, you know, is it the humanity of Jesus that you really relate to and the fact that he experienced all the things that we experience and so he can relate to us? Or is it the divinity aspect that he left heaven and came to the earth? Um, which do you find most encouraging? And why is the other one challenging? I guess challenging may be not exactly the right word, but um, what might be challenging? How would you explain to someone the mystery of Jesus, humanity, and divinity? So you talk to somebody and they say, wow, what did you do last night? And you're like, well, I went to this really lame class. And the guy talked about stuff that was way over my head. Um, how would you explain to someone in the mystery of Jesus, humanity, and divinity? And then, what questions have arisen for you after the last two weeks? So, after the, the first two weeks, or the last two weeks, you know, are there more questions that you have that haven't been answered? Do you feel like you have more questions now than you did before? Um, so, five to seven is what I said, right? Five to seven people in your groups. Um, I'll give you about 13 minutes to discuss these three questions, actually four questions. Um, 
and then we'll come back together. Ready, go.